going to be an unusual podcast today because of some technical difficulties and people being off. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion, Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And today that discussion is between me, Chris Quinn, and my colleague, Jane Cahoon. We're all at you today. I don't know how long we'll go. You're so, stuck with me, I'm afraid. I hope you had a good weekend. It's supposed to get up to 40 today. It's going to feel like we're in spring. It's unbelievable. We have the snow that just cascades off of our tile roof, you know. Oh, know. The, so it sounds like constant avalanches. So. I know. It was all night long. You could hear these phantom sounds going on. It's amazing how deep the snow is. We had a bunch of deer in the backyard that the dog was checking out. And when I walked back there, it's like, man, it has mounded up to... A lot. So hopefully it'll melt today. Let's get going. What are the most likely Cleveland locations to be mass coronavirus vaccination centers if and when Ohio changes its strategy to reach more people? Jane Cahoon, this is <laughs> this is a very ill-defined plan by Governor Mike DeWine. We've been pressing him for, man, it must be going on two months. And he keeps saying, yeah, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And even though we're a year into this pandemic, we don't have a plan, but we have like the minorest details of a plan. Yeah. Is it a plan? He He said earlier that mass vaccinations were always part of the strategy. It's just they're they're waiting for the vaccine, enough vaccine. But It's coming, hopefully, you know, so we did eke out a few more details in that the DeWine administration told Laura Hancock that the the Browns, the Indians and the Cavaliers, as well as the Cincinnati Bengals, had volunteered their venues as mass vaccination sites. But, you know, they haven't made any decisions on on whether sports arenas will become these sites. And there isn't any timeline on this. As I said, they're waiting for the increase in the number of vaccines. And we don't know like what other sites have been identified. So are these the likely sites? Who knows? The administration tells us there's there's not a list per se. It's in some mapping system that the Ohio Emergency Management Agency keeps. They did give us a list of providers that have offered to volunteer at, at future sites. There were 127 of those, including pharmacies and health departments and hospitals. But but I I don't Um, even understand how that works. I mean, it seems like the basic logistics of this would be pick a place, the IX Center, for instance, which a lot mm -hmm. of people suggest, gigantic, cavernous, easy to socially distant each other and free parking, right? And and actually, because you're near the airport, probably you could argue you got transit there. And then you bring in a bunch of medical professionals, (laughs) you set up lines and people go through. I once you start talking about 127 providers, it sounds like a Tower of Babel to me. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think each site would have to partner with just maybe a couple of providers or something. I, I don't know how it works. But we did see that uh, President Joe Biden show off the mass vaccination center that they set up in Arizona at the Cardinal Stadium. That seemed to run efficiently. Of course, that was, you know, in Arizona where the weather's nice and they could do it in a tent. But, you know, I would think the Cuyahoga County Fairgrounds or, or someplace like that, you know, they have buildings there, too, where they could do something like this. It's just we just don't know. We're not getting the details. Well, and it's pressing because it sounds like in the next four to six weeks, there's going to be a huge influx of vaccine that the federal government is getting closer to having a big boost. And so that's when you say, OK, we, it's no longer 65-year-old people who are frustrated at their inability to find anything after sitting in front of their computers all day that were organized. 
But DeWine is basically telling us they're going away from the federal model, that they're doing their own model, right? They called Laura Hancock to complain about something we said on the podcast <laughs> and said, we've got a better system than the feds. Of course, we don't know what that system is. Yeah, I mean, the the system all along has been this decentralized, you know, every person for his or herself setting it up in all 88 counties, having locations where you can get it, but very limited supply. So, you know, I know people who are going through this. It's just constant frustration trying to trying to get in. Oh, it's the single biggest complaint we get. I mean, we, we hear from people every day that they're just so frustrated. Although I do, I think, unless we blow it, I do think we're going to have the supply to meet that demand pretty soon. It's just then how do you catapult this forward into let's let's do mass vaccinations. Then there's the idea that you might be able to do people for now with a single shot to do more people quickly. Yeah, I wonder if any states are going to buy into that. But think about it mathematically, right? You can give half as many people the shots to get to 95% protection or twice as many people to get to 85%. Doing the, the latter would would get you herd immunity much quicker because the the number of people that are vulnerable to being infected and having this thing mutate gets much smaller. It seems like a pretty smart move and some countries are pushing for it. It'll be interesting to see if that conversation takes place this week. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The courts and legislators worked last week to curb First Energy in the House Bill 6 corruption and bribery scandal. But how might an activist investor make an even bigger difference? Jen Cahoon, I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden we're talking about HB6 a lot again. It's like (laughs) a lot of critical mass on the activity with both the company and the legislature and the courts and then Mm -hmm. this latest piece of news. So let's deal with the latest piece of news first and then go backwards to the other things that are happening. Yeah, last week, First Energy had an earnings call. And during that call, they revealed that Carl Icahn, who's a billionaire investor and people probably know his name for, you know, all the hostile takeovers he's engineered. He recently told First Energy officials that he plans to buy a major stake in the company. And that initially caused First Energy stock prices to spike uh, nearly 8% on Thursday morning. The Beacon Journal explored this a little further and reported that Icon says he's going to buy between $184 million and $920 million in First Energy stock. I guess what this means isn't really clear yet, but they talked to an industry analyst who said First Energy eventually could be put up for sale, you know, either in its entirety or or the sale of not what they call non-core parts of the utility. Anyway, it's it's an interesting scenario, you know, that that could take place. I'm not smart enough in matters of of stock and takeovers to to know exactly how this would play out, but I don't know, you got any speculation? Well, about it? institutional investors have stayed away from First Energy because they don't trust it. They looked at the ratios of of all sorts of numbers and found that their value was propped up. They've been waiting for the roof to collapse. That that phony profit scheme, the decoupling, it it was such a ridiculous thing that investors didn't believe it would stick. And now it hasn't stuck. They they have looked at the failure of First Energy to invest in any form of infrastructure as a problem with their formulas. They use 
mergers to make it look like they have infrastructure investment, but they haven't been investing in their infrastructure. So I'm not surprised now that things are in free fall and collapsing, that now investors are saying, ooh, now's the time to get in. When it hits bottom, let's mm -hmm. buy in. And for Carl Icahn, he's going to buy in, load the board up with people who know what they're doing and turn it into a real utility again, because for years it's been smoke and mirrors and and bogus payments in the legislature. So it's so it's really interesting. If he does that, if all of a sudden investors see value in this utility again, and if it starts to do things right and rebuild Ohio's infrastructure, yeah. that would all be great. The courts are active too. We had the major plea on Friday. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, Generation Now, the uh, dark money group that was at the heart of this $60 million bribery scheme that federal authorities said took place to pass House Bill 6 pleaded guilty. And so uh, they have basically admitted to a federal racketeering charge. That that means we, on the record, got, got them admitting that this bribery scheme took place to elevate Larry Householder as Speaker of the House to pass this bill and protect it from a repeal. So now, we, let me, let me stop you. Now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're in the legislature. You're in the House. Larry Householder is still a fellow member and now you have a nonprofit pleading guilty, admitting that the $60 million had forked over to that guy to control was part of a big bribery scheme. And you're not voting him out as a member? He's not yeah, being yeah, ousted? They're still, they're still considering that, Chris. They, yeah. they, you got to think about it. But they are. there is finally some movement on some of these bills. We talked about one of them last week. And speaking, of, as you were, of decoupling one of those bills, Senate Bill 10, that would permanently remove that decoupling provision that, that guarantees a certain level of revenue for First Energy, uh, that would remove that from House Bill 6. And it it has, it's actually been passed by the Senate, and now it has its first hearing in a House committee on Tuesday afternoon. So lo and behold, they, they're actually doing something piecemeal as it, as it might be. And that was the big reward to First Energy out of HB6. Everybody talks about the nuclear bailout, but they got rid of those quick, dished them off to some affiliated company. What they wanted was decoupling because it was basically a hundred plus million dollars in free cash on our backs every year. Over 10 years, it would have been well over a billion dollars. And now that money has been stopped by uh, other action in the courts. But if they end it and provide if they their, pass this bill they they would get refunds for yeah. people for what's already been paid which takes it a step further which they should do because the whole thing was corrupt and scummy you don't get you don't just get free money from the the ratepayers and i don't know what the legislature or the puco was thinking they certainly weren't representing the ratepayers and of course bill sites is still out there saying i believe in this bill this was a good bill and, and, you know, it's completely corrupt and it, it took money off of our backs. How does that guy show his face? I mean, he's been proven that everything he says is just not true. And yet he's still out there pretending the legislature did a good thing with this bill. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are the coronavirus indicators for Northeast Ohio some of the best news we've seen in these parts in a very long time? Jane, this was a really good way to end the week. It was a nice, a nice shot in the arm to think, okay, maybe things are getting better. 
shot in the arm. Was that an intended pun there? <laughs> no, it's just in my brain. <laughs> I want the shot in my arm. <laughs> yeah, Rich Exner took a look at the metrics, and he concentrated on our seven-county area here in Northeast Ohio. But the new cases over over the previous two weeks is a is one figure you look at. That total for the seven-county greater Cleveland area was at 23,748 in the December 17th report and at 19,206 on January 14th. But it's dipped all the way to 7,223 in the latest report that was issued Thursday. Rich looked at, you know, hospitalizations, emergency room trips, doctor's office visits, and they're all down. So in that area, there were 836 cases regionally per 100,000 residents. This is coronavirus cases in the two weeks leading up to the December 17th report, and that covered data through December 15th. That number dropped to 697.9 in mid-January, and then really sharply down to 262.5 on Thursday. So things are seem to be going in the right direction. You know, we were talking before about the mass vaccinations and the one-shot deal or what, whatever. It's like, I sort of feel like we're in this race, you know, against these contagious, more contagious variants to to get people vaccinated. But right now, you know, these numbers are, are going in the right direction and you just really don't want to see them spike back up again. Yeah. I mean, if we get everybody vaccinated, it will reduce the number of mutations because there's less fertile ground. And this is, look, people are speculating on what the cause of this is. Some people say it's just the, the nature of viruses. They, they flourish in the middle of winter and they wean as the winter goes toward the end. I, I do think there's no way you can't give credit to the strategy that Mike DeWine used to vaccinate the old people because the old people were the ones going into the hospital in the largest numbers. And by getting to everybody in the nursing homes and starting with the oldest people, you do greatly reduce the population that was most hit by this. But it's just great news. It's good to see now if we could just get everybody vaccinated. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe we'll all enjoy a fun summer. But uh, uh, Wouldn't it be nice? But nice job by Rich Exner kind of putting that all into perspective. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. After watching Texans go without heat, power, and water last week because of a winter storm, should Ohioans be concerned about what could happen here? Jen Cahoon, when I lived in Florida for nine years, we love to do stories about, ha, 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 look at the blizzards up there. We live in Florida. It's kind of the reverse of that. <laughs> well, I can't help but bring up Ted Cruz, who somebody resurrected a tweet he put out in like 2016 saying, I'll believe in climate change when Texas freezes over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a buffoon. <laughs> but anyway, Ohio does appear to be better positioned to handle a storm like that, according to what Andrew Tobias found in, in looking into this. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising because we're, we're used to these types of winters. But the failure in Texas was largely because the equipment that they used there to draw the natural gas out of the ground froze while thermal power plants fueled by gas and nuclear reactions, not, not just the wind turbines, also failed. But there are other factors that contribute to why Ohio is able to keep the lights on when, when temperatures plummet. And it's, it's not just because we weatherize our, our infrastructure. One has to do with the power grid. Texas has its own power grid. 
And, you know, most states are part of one of the two major power grids that that run from each coast and kind of meet in the middle of the country. And Ohio, of course, is part of the eastern connection. And then the West Coast states are part of the Western connection. But nearly all of Texas is is part of its own system. And um, it's it's run by a nonprofit manager overseen by the state government. And the bigger grids on the two coasts, the, the major national interconnections, they tend to be more resilient when power plants fail. One expert that Andrew talked to explained it by saying they have a more brittle system because when you have a small system, one generator failing as a percentage or proportion of the system has an effect that's much larger. And as you probably heard, they, they, there was a lot of blame, blaming of renewable energy in, in Texas, but this expert said that was just, that's a red herring. He said a greater reliance on renewable energy can pose some reliability issues, but planners compensate for that with weatherization and by reducing their reliance on them during the winter. So he said, you know, wind turbines operate in Iceland and Antarctica without freezing. And, you know, you can weatherize gas pipelines and you can weatherize thermal generators so that they can tolerate extreme cold. But that just didn't happen. In, in no, Texas. I mean, let's face it. Texas has been playing with fire by not spending the money it needs on infrastructure and boasting about how its taxes are so low. That's what taxes pay for is infrastructure. The only my only problem with this is, yeah. Our power plants, our delivery all work in cold weather. But you and I live in Cleveland Heights where we lose power all the time because First Energy has failed to continue to keep the infrastructure good. So every time we have a windstorm, we have massive outages. Anybody in Shaker Heights and Cleveland Heights and South Euclid has been through this. We, we are not really equipped for our version of the climate change big storms, which we've been getting in large numbers over the past few years. It's not the it's not the generation that's the problem. Yeah, they, they have to invest in more infrastructure improvements. Well, maybe they will if Carl Icahn buys up most of the stock. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is Ohio's Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown so intent on booting the nation's Social Security chief? And does he have any power to do that? Jane Cahoon, Sabrina Eaton wrote a good story about this over the, or I guess it was the end of the last week or over the weekend. Friday. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's interesting that, that Sherrod is so focused on that. What's going on? Yeah, he, Sherrod Brown considers the Social Security chief and his deputy, quote, key agents of the Trump agenda to dismantle Social Security. He said they, they cut the benefits that hardworking Americans have earned. They've attacked the Social Security Administration's employees. They've denied beneficiaries due process and needlessly increased disability reviews during during the pandemic that he said no one has been safe from their path of destruction. Now, the commissioner, his name is is Andrew Saul, and, and he was appointed to a term that ends in 2025. And then his deputy is is David Black, and his term expires at the same time. But he, he wants them both to resign. And if they don't resign, he wants President Joe Biden to to remove them. But it's not really clear here that that Biden can do that, because although many presidential appointees are routinely replaced when a new president takes over, the Social Security commissioners are not among them. There's a 1994 law that established the Social Security Administration as an independent agency and it gave the commissioners these six-year terms. 
And under that law, a president can remove a commissioner for for malfeasance or neglect of duty, just not just because a new administration took over. So to me, it's not it's not really clear whether this can just happen unless they have some proof that there's malfeasance or neglect of duty. This is the problem when you create these independent positions. They do that because they want them to have independence and be protected from malevolent actors to do the right thing. But when you have a president like Trump, like as he did with the Postal Service in here, you put in the bad actors, then they're insulated from stopping the bad actions. And so it makes you question whether that's the, the wisest course. I mean, the post office is a mess because of the guy Trump put in charge of that. And he's yeah. still trying to wreck it. And here we have the same thing. It'll be uh, interesting to see if the pressure on this guy to just go works and that you get somebody in there that is much more focused on service. But it's interesting. Brown has not been in charge of that committee very long and he is already. Yeah, he's, wielding he's on fire. <laughs> yeah, he's got a sledgehammer going. Uh, it's kind of fun to watch. He's wanted to do this for a while and he might only have two years, so he's got to get some stuff done. <laughs> right. It's this week in the CLE. Cleveland schools have been under a magnifying glass about whether they will meet the March 1st deadline for bringing students back to the classroom. So what's the latest plan? Jane Cahoon, this wasn't really a big deal until a Friday night a week and a half ago when Mike DeWine went on a tirade after hours to, to show he was strong against these urban school districts that are not moving quickly enough to get kids back into school. You know, the Republicans, they want to get the kids back in school. Let's not forget that Mike DeWine is the guy who closed the schools. So what are Cleveland schools going to do? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I've, I've been reading about this lately, that this is really part of the Republican playbook for their next campaigns. We, we're the party that wants kids back in school and the Democrats <laughs> don't want that. And they want to just protect teachers unions. And, you know, Wait, but, Mike Dewey's the guy that closed the schools. I just don't see how he runs on that plank. The Democrats stopped me from reopening the schools. Well, they wouldn't have had to if you didn't close them to begin with. I mean, that was a unilateral action that we now know really wasn't necessary. Yeah, they're anyway. counting on short memories, I guess. But yeah, anyway, well, we won't let them have short memories. We have long <laughs> memories. So the Cleveland schools did announce Friday that they're they're going to phase in students in three groups and they are going to begin on March 1st, which is DeWine's target date. And that's a full month earlier than what CEO Eric Gordon had had estimated um, earlier this month. And that's what uh, drew DeWine's ire, I guess. So they're going to return students in a hybrid schedule with two day a week in person instruction for for the ones opting to return instead of continuing this online only instruction. So, you know, they've got more than 37,000 students, so this is no no easy task, but what they're planning is that on on March 1st, students with the highest needs, these are students with learning disabilities and and potentially off-track seniors and off-track career tech students, they would go back. Then on March 8th, a much larger group that would include English language learners, pre-K through second grade, off-track, ninth and twelfth grade students, and career tech students. Then finally, on March 15th, that would be all the rest of the students. And they are starting spring sports practices. Uh, I guess that's today. Is today the 22nd? Yeah. Gordon said during an interview with Emily Bamforth that, that this is based on a survey that was sent to families but a, but a significant amount of families didn't complete the survey. So they're not completely sure how many students they're going to need to accommodate here 
He said in the typical Eric Gordon fashion, he said it's going to require some patience and grace. So they're going to have social distancing, you know, with like 12 to 14 students per classroom and six feet between desks. And they're going to have, you know, as few students as possible passing each other in the hallways. So I guess we'll we'll have to see if this is good enough for, for Governor DeWine. Uh, as you said, they he called them out in this hastily called news conference for for not uh, moving <laughs> fast enough. And uh, Gordon did acknowledge to Emily that he had talked to DeWine. He said it was a good and candid conversation. And he hopes that DeWine is going to see the good faith intentions to get students back into buildings as soon as possible. You know, DeWine did say at that news conference when we asked him about it that, well, you know, it was a good faith effort and that was good enough for him. So well, I guess we'll have to see. Not much he can do about it anyway. What's he going to do? Cut their budget? Oh, wait, he did that already. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And he's not going to cut off the second no. vaccine. You know, the, we, we should mention this was all in exchange for getting teachers and other staff vaccinated. And, you know, once they get the first round, it's not. He, DeWine clearly said it would be unethical not to continue with those vaccinations. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. So, Jane, I got to ask, did you watch Stanley Tucci in Rome? I did. I did. (laughs) The one one recipe where it was the cheese, where they said they were going to keep the formula secret, but then they didn't. The pasta with (laughs) just... The, I think I, it was the pecorino the cheese, cacio, the parmigiano. Cacio pepe, right? Oh, my God. That pepe. looked to die for. You know, gonna... I actually have made that before, and I'm proud to say I did a pretty darn good job on it. And I didn't just add the pepper at the end like they did. I crushed it by hand and added it like at the beginning with the... Anyway, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't their recipe. Oh I'm sure God. theirs was to die for. But good. All of that pasta, it was like one pasta dish after another. It was unbelievable. Yeah, he opened it up by saying, if you're not into carbohydrates, yeah. you're going to have a problem. <laughs> God, it's killing me, though, because he's talking to enough people in Italian where I've, I've just decided I'm going back. It's going to be my fourth round, and I think this time I can finally become fluent. I'm going for Are, are you understanding it without the subtitles? Or are you no, I mean, a little. I, you know, look, I hadn't done it in five years. This is my fourth time. So I'll go through that Duolingo tree. But I think the tools online now and some of the things you can do can make it easier. But, it, I, God, I love that language. I'm, I've got to do it. I've just got to get to the point of of uh, fluency the tools have, it's the last time i did it was five years ago and the yeah. tools have gotten even that's better. my my one regret my late mother-in-law was a native italian and i wish i would have made her teach me italian but, yeah i've tried i mean i i was talking to somebody in italy and when i first did it having weekly trying to have weekly conversations i've you know completed the duolingo tree i've done a bunch of other things the problem is, is if you're not immersed in it you can't do it i mean i am I've, I told you when uh, when we were there and mid mid trip we were going to Luca and <laughs> the train went on strike. We pull into Bologna and the train stops and nobody tells you anything. But it was on strike and I had to talk my way onto a bus Whew. to get to Luca with with no English and I did it. My wife was so blown away. I mean, but <laughs> but it was really hard and you know people talk kind of fast. Anyway, God, that is. Uh, but they're lovely people, so. Oh, yeah. it is, and and w- this show, it it seems like it's getting buzz. Everybody, it seems like, is talking about it, and this one was a, a great episode. So I was thinking of you as I watched it. Good, <laughs> good to know you made that dish. Kathy says she just read in the New York Times or somebody uh, about that dish, so that's going to be 
on our list very soon. <laughs> I'll send you the recipe. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Maybe Laura and Chris will be back tomorrow. Who knows? We are at the mercy of technical difficulties.